ever wanted something really, really bad? Like, like even something for Christmas, right, that you like maybe even wrote. Uh, if you're a, a Michigan fan, there's definitely something you want really, really bad, and is, we're just not getting it, okay? There is a little kid uh, who actually wrote um, some friends of mine. Uh, it's, uh, it's their son, and he had a, a great explanation uh, of why he should receive a bearded dragon for Christmas. Look at this. Dear Mom and Dad, for Christmas I would like a bearded dragon, complete with emojis, mind you. There are many reasons I should get one, including it will teach me responsibility. It would be a good pet because it's not too expensive, and finally I could take it for walks. Now, I love this because uh, he must be learning how to create an argument in school. So he lists off three things. Now he's going to explain each one of the three, and then he's going to summarize it all. First of all, to take care of Pierre, I guess he's already given it a name, uh, specifically his pet's needs. Uh, he's going to, uh, I don't, he, it gets a little convoluted, lots of care. He's going to learn to take care of it. And then he says, some people might argue that kids are too young to care for a pet. However, I do not think that about myself. Also, I should get a bearded dragon because it's not too expensive of a pet. In fact, there's one at PetSmart for $39.99. And food for the bearded dragon is not that expensive. It's only $3.78. This kid's done his homework. I uh, kind of appreciate that. Uh, if I get a bearded dragon, then I can use Pat Pat's tank, which I'm assuming is another pet that they either had or have. Another reason we should get a bearded dragon is because we can take it for walks. Uh, I don't know if he knows he lives in Michigan, but it can be enjoyable for the whole family. There is one on Amazon for $39.99 if the one at PetSmart's not there later. Uh, in all, to get a bearded dragon, it will teach me responsibility, be good for our family, and isn't expensive. I really hope I wake up on Christmas morning to a bearded dragon. Your sweet boy. That's awesome, right? How many of you guys are like, ooh, I want a bearded dragon now? Sounds amazing. Uh, I, I have often had some of those same thoughts, right? These things that I desire when I was younger, uh, they, they seem to be smaller, less expensive things. The older I get, they tend to grow, or at least in expense, if not size. But things never satisfy, do they? Uh, I think they say, uh, and psychologists have actually studied this, uh, you are usually uh, over the giddy good feelings of whatever it is that you got in about a week's time. That's pretty quick for us to get over are to become unsatisfied again. And there's a lot of good things that many of us are actually hoping for, right? I mean, sometimes the things we're hoping for are not simply a bearded dragon, although it would be great for the whole family, mom and dad. Sometimes we're hoping for things that are more serious, that seem to have more meaning, right? Like, oh God, like if I could just get out of this job that I, I just feel no passion for. God, if I could have a job that I kind of get to in, in, engage the things that I'm passionate about or that I feel like I'm good at. God, it, if I could just have that relationship, if you would allow that to work out, God, I finally would, I, would, I would just feel satisfied. Or God, uh, my marriage isn't what I know it ought to be. God, would you do something about that? That's a good prayer. God, God, what, would, would you do something about this struggle that I'm having, this health issue? God, I want healing. Uh, God, I hate this addiction that I'm, that I'm fighting and wrestling with. All good things. But even when good things 
are given to us, they never satisfy. There's always something else that's not right. Something else we think we need. Something else we think we want. This morning I'd like to show us as we close our series in Exodus uh, a story that actually kind of comes out of the entire Exodus journey, although we find only a a small piece of it, but a very important piece in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's actually a story um, of something that happens to Moses that at first blush seems incredibly unfair. But I think it's the very thing that every single one of us ought to be praying for. Moses gets called to do the impossible. Called by God and God says, I want you to go and rescue my people. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to use you. And you're going to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and you're going to tell him to let my people go. So if we think back to the very beginning of our story in Exodus, Moses, after trying to get out of it, finally relents and says, okay, God, I will trust you and I will obey you. So Moses then goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, uh, God would like you to let his people go. Pharaoh says, who is this God? Moses then shows him who this God is. God shows up, throws down a staff. His staff turns into a snake, eats all the other dudes, staff snakes. All right, then God shows up and does the first plague and then nine more plagues. Uh, But after the first one, though, something interesting happens. God has said to Moses, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. I'm going to use you to do that. The people are all pumped at first, like, man, we've been asking God. And finally, uh, the text says that God sees, he hears, and he knows. And that means God's going to come and do something. And the people are excited about that. And they're all like, yeah, go get him, Moses. We got you. We're on your side. And then after the first plague, Pharaoh comes and says, yo, uh, I'm going to double their workload. And then the people are all like, ah, boo, Moses, you're the worst. We hate you, Moses. Like, you're the one that's making this happen. Was Moses the one that was doubling the workload? Was Moses the one that was oppressing them? Was Moses the one that had placed them in slavery? No. But the people turn on Moses when Pharaoh's doing this. Well, God shows up. Nine more times through the plagues to show that he is actually in control over the sea, the earth, the sky. He's the true God and there is none like him and none of Egyptians' gods can handle him. He continues to show that he's the one that's in control. And finally, Pharaoh relents and releases the people and all of the Israelites are like, Moses is our man. Yeah, Moses. Yeah, boy. And then two days later, they get to the Red Sea. And they're like, why did you bring us out here, Moses? You're the worst. Like, you're going to kill us now. We're all going to come. Why didn't we just die in Egypt? And Moses is like, oh. But then God shows up and he parts the Red Sea. And the people are like, yeah, Moses, you're a man. You're the best. And they walk through and they get to the other side. God's with them. Pillar of cloud by day to guide them. A pillar of fire at night protecting them. They get through. Pharaoh's gone. They're like, Moses, you're the best. And then a few days later, they're like, we're hungry. We don't have anything to eat. God's brought us out here to die. Oh, we can't stand you. We should have just died in Egypt. And, and God's like, oh, okay, give them some manna. So God provides. They're like, oh, it's just manna. We used to have meat. 
he's going, okay, here's some quail. And, oh, we don't have any water. And so God says, hey, Moses, take the staff, go to that rock, hit it, and I'm going to pour out a whole bunch of water. Enough water that's actually going to be a feed uh, or drink for all the Israelites and their livestock. Moses does what he, prank, water. Everybody's like, yeah, you're the best. But do you see the pattern? Do you see how frustrating that would be? So uh, I want to show you this map just so we can get our bearings a little bit. It's a little bit different than the one that Dr. Bird showed us. But uh, see the same thing. Top left corner, Nile Delta, that's Egypt. The green line is, uh, we're not 100% sure, the the route of the Exodus. But uh, as you can see, they leave Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They come down to the southern part uh, where it's Mount Sinai. And that's where they meet God, and God makes a covenant with Israel that Israel's going to now be his special possession, a holy nation. They're set apart by God. God is choosing them to do something special with them, and they're going to become a kingdom of priests. Priests are people who represent God to the rest of the world. And so God says, hey, Israel, I want to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my special possession. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to dwell in your midst. You're going to experience the unbelievable gift of my presence. And then you're going to represent me to everybody else so that the blessings that I give to you, you can then turn around and give to the rest of the world. Cool. They're all about it. So God tells Moses, Moses, uh, come back up on the mountain. I want to give you uh, the design for the tabernacle where my presence is going to dwell, all right? So it's this tent that they're supposed to create, and then they're going to set it up in the middle of the camp, and then everybody's going to camp around it, and they get to be around God's presence. Moses goes up on the mountain. The people start looking at their watch like, yo, he's taking a long time. I don't know if he's coming back. We should make a golden calf. That sounds like a great idea. So they do that, right? That's what we learned last week. Moses comes down, he's like, what in the world? Like, how many times are you going to keep turning back to Egypt? How many times are you going to keep walking away from God? How many times am I going to have to keep going before God? And God wants to end Israel. I mean, they basically cheated on him on the honeymoon. And God's like, I'm done, I'm done. Moses, I'm going to do with you what I had promised Your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and all the way down. And now I'm going to do it with you. And Abraham again goes to God and says, God, please don't do that. Yeah, I know you could just make the blessing come through with me. But God, these are your people. And so God goes and speaks and kind of on behalf of the people, he pleads for them. And God relents and changes his mind. And God only judges those who don't turn back to him. It's a beautiful picture of God's inexhaustible love that even when the people keep walking away and complaining, God keeps coming back. So, after a year on Mount Sinai, okay, they camp there for a year. They celebrate the first anniversary of the Passover. All right, so the second Passover, they celebrate it. They go and start. God says, I want you to leave. You're going to head to the promised land. So it takes them about a year. Uh, they work their way up to a place called Kadesh Barnea, okay? It's just on the outside of the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. They get up there. About a year later, they celebrate the second anniversary of the Passover. So this is another third Passover that they've celebrated together to be reminded of what God had done. 
okay? And uh, they say, okay, we're going to take 12 spies, one from each tribe. They're going to go into the land, and they're going to check it out, all right? So they do that. God says, hey, I brought you up here. I'm going to give it to you. 12 spies go in. 12 spies come back. And they're loaded down with some, like, amazing things, all right? They've got huge bunches of grapes and, like, all this wonderful stuff that they found because the land is amazing, unbelievable. It's just, they say, flowing with milk and honey, all right? That's just a a fun way of saying, like, it's got so much deliciousness and awesomeness and amazingness. Like, this place is, like, the best. And this is what God wants to give us. Two of them are like, yo, God said let's take it. Check it out. All this stuff ready for us. Let's go. And ten of them, though, say, it is amazing, but we can't do it. The people there are too big. Their cities are too fortified. They're too strong. There's too many. After everything that they've seen, and you know what actually happens? The people start to uh, grumble and complain again. Grumble and complain. Crumble. Yeah, that's a, they crumble. That's literally kind of what happens. They crumble. In fact, they actually come up with a plan. They say, hey, let's kill Moses and Aaron. Let's get a new leader who can lead us back to Egypt. That's their plan. It's too big. We can't do it. Our God's not big enough to do what he says he's going to do, even though they've seen him do so many things over and over again. And God says, fine. You don't want to obey me? Everybody 20 years and older is now going to stay in the wilderness for the next 38 years until they're all dead. You see, what the the 10 spies said is, if we go and attack them, they're going to kill us and they're going to carry off our wives and our children to become slaves. God can't protect our children is basically what they said. And so God says, you're all going to die and the kids that you didn't think I was going to be able to protect are now the ones that are actually going to go in and inherit the land. Everybody except for Abraham, Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, those are the only men above the age of 20 that are going to get to go in with them. How frustrating would it be to be Moses? I mean, every single time you turn around, like, the people are grumbling and complaining. And you're like, yo, I'm just trying to help you experience the greatest relationship you could possibly ever have. I'm helping you understand what it's like to have a relationship with God, to be in his presence Like, this is the thing that's going to fulfill you more than anything else. And all you want to do is look for this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing and every other way. And how stinking frustrating would it be? Uh, If you're a parent, you know exactly what this is like. Because you've taken your kids on a trip before. I uh, took my kids last year to uh, Boston for the summer. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. We're going to drive out to Boston. They've heard about all these cool places. They're actually going to go get to go see them in person. Like, we're literally going to take them to, uh, you got the picture? Mike's Pastry. Oh, my goodness, cannolis. They're like the greatest cannolis in the world. They're going to enjoy some Mike's. It's going to be amazing. And what happens the whole time? Watch this video to see. Hi, Bella. Hi, Kai Kai. Hi, Max. Hey, Max. You're going to die. <laughs> That's the perfect video to explain any of our summer trips. Now, my kids are not that bad. They're actually 
great and, and they're always very appreciative. But you know what it's like, right? You, you get on the road and 15 minutes in, I'm hungry. Are we there yet? You got like, we got 11 hours and 45 minutes left, okay? Buckle up. But that's how it is. My kids all, <laughs> I will admit, I was not a great leader uh, because we're walking around. They're like, it's so hot. We, can we just go back to the hotel and swim? Like, I didn't drive you 12 hours to a hotel so you could go swimming. We're seeing the sights. You're going to love it. <laughs> but then I realized I'm so much like my kids when it comes to my relationship with God. Uh, God's got me on, on, on this adventure where he's trying to show me some stuff. Who he is and what he's like and what he desires for me. And all I can do is keep complaining. Yeah, but I don't have this, God. And why don't I have that? And God, would it be so better if it was this? And God, how come you haven't done this yet? And why haven't you healed this thing, God? Or why haven't you changed that? And God, it would be better if I was just back in Egypt. I'll create it myself. If you're not going to give it to me, God, I'll make my own golden calf. And if I'm Moses, I'm, I'm starting to lose it. Like, God, I'm trying to lead your people, but they're awful. Like, God, they're just like, they're the worst. So it happens again. They're there in the desert. They don't have the water that they need, and so they start crying out. Now, they've already gotten water once in the middle of the desert. There's been another time where they didn't have water to feed their, or to, to water their livestock or for themselves. And God tells Moses, hey, Moses, take the staff, take, go up to that rock, hit the rock, and I'm going to gush water out of it. Moses does what God says. Everything's good. This time, the people come and they start complaining. We don't have any water. You brought us out here so that we can die. It would have been better if we'd stayed in Egypt. Ten different times this happens throughout the story where the people complain and they grumble and they ask to go back to Egypt. It's insane. It's crazy. And if I'm Moses, I'm getting fed up by now. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Numbers. We're actually going to be in Numbers chapter 20 to start. We're going to look at three passages. If you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand this morning. We've got some folks that would love to hand you one. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then we're going to be in Deuteronomy. We're going to look at a passage in Numbers, passage in Deuteronomy, and then we're going to finish with a small passage in Exodus. Numbers chapter 20, this is the story of the second time that God provides water from a rock. Verse 2, chapter 20 of Numbers says, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They're basically saying, It would be better if we were dead, Moses, because you brought us out here. Why would you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It doesn't have any grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Take us back. They're saying we would rather have a few figs and a pomegranate and be slaves. At this point, if I'm Moses, I'm losing it. Like I was like... I'm going to bring my kids back to Egypt, the hotel pool, and I'm going to go get the whip. Like that's, what I, like, that's what I was ready. I'm just kidding. I don't whip my children. But Moses had to be feeling that way. Keep reading. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. 
The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together. Remember when we said that they were called the assembly of the Lord? We see that happening already. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Now the first time God told them to go up to the rock and hit it. This time God says, I want you to speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of its... uh, you will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. That's a lot of water, okay? In a place that has no water, that's a lot of water to come out that not only the whole community can drink, but even the livestock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice, whop, whop, with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Now we got a problem here. All right, God had told Moses to do what to the rock? Speak, yes. Moses, though, instead of speaking to the rock, instead he speaks to the people, and he smacks the rock. It would have been better for him to speak to the rock and smack the people. But Moses does the opposite, okay? He smacks the rock even though God had told him to speak to it. Not only that, but we see what he says. He says, listen, you rebels, must we, referring to he and Aaron, bring you water out of this rock. And then it says Moses raised his arm. He's kind of saying that, hey, we're the ones going to do this for you. He's kind of taking some of the glory that was intended for God. God is holy, and Moses decides that he's going to put himself in the same company. So, hand goes up. Let me show you what I'm about to do. Flop, flop. And water comes out. Now look at what happens. Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses screwed up, no doubt about it. But man, doesn't that seem a little harsh? And he's been trying to lead these people. And all they do is grumble and complain. They, all, they keep wanting to turn on him. They want to have him killed on a couple of different occasions. They don't want to follow him. He's like, God, I'm just trying to lead you. Like, they're so, are you not frustrated? God's like, yeah, but my frustration is holy. So Moses disobeys God, and God says, your punishment is you're not going to get to go into the promised land now. I don't know, man. There's a piece of me that's like, man, God, come on, really? Like, I get he messed up. Flip back with me to, uh, excuse me, to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, There's a couple of things that I think are really important for us to grab while we're turning back to Deuter- or excuse me, forward to Deuteronomy 32. Two things worth noting from the Numbers passage. Uh, number one, God is holy. God is holy. Uh, I'll admit, I don't understand his holiness all the time, but I know that he's in control, and trying to take credit for his work is never going to go well for any of us. Uh, the second thing, though, that I think is really important for us to notice before we jump into Deuteronomy 32 is that there's something else that we need to pay attention to. Something else that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Read with me uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, starting in verse 48. 
It says, on that same day, the Lord told Moses, this is a, a while later, not the same day that the rock incident happens, go up into the Abarim range to Mount Nebo and Moab across from Jericho and view Canaan, the land I'm giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Or and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Flip over to 34, verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo, from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho, there the, land, there the Lord showed him the whole land. From Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, just as the Lord had said. Do you know what I think is interesting about this whole story? Both times when God first pronounces the consequence for Moses' actions as well as at the very end of his life when he is recounting the reason he doesn't get to go into the promised land, Moses doesn't argue with God. I find it weird, personally. Because all throughout the Exodus story, when Israel screws up, Moses goes before God on behalf of the people and says, God, would you please relent and change your mind? God, yes, they have messed up. But for your glory, God, would you be the one who leads us, God? Would you not forsake your people, God, that you have made a covenant with, that you have chosen, God? Would you continue to show your inexhaustible love? And God, time and time and time and time and time again, pours out his grace and his blessing, his love on the people. And Moses has done this a number of times throughout the story. And then he messes up this one time. And there is consequence for going against God's holiness. And yet Moses doesn't come back to God and say, God, I, 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 I admit, I blew it. I screwed up. I shouldn't have done that. I was frustrated. Please forgive me. God, would you, for your glory, allow me, your servant, to lead your people into the land. Just let me step into it, God, to show the world that you are a God who is kind and with us and your presence. And then, God, take me. I don't care. But he doesn't do that. Why? Why doesn't he ask for God to give him a second chance or God to relent and change his mind? I actually think the key to that we find in Exodus 33. You see, Moses had come to learn something very important about the promised land. Flip back to Exodus 33. This is going to be our last text we look at this morning. Exodus 33. What seems like one of the harshest penalties, in fact, at first blush seems unfair compared to other things that have happened. This is why I think it's the very thing we ought to be praying for, for our own lives. Verse, or excuse me, chapter 33, verse 7, 
uh, this is right after Israel has made the golden calf and God has come down uh, to judge them. God wants to destroy all of them and Moses has already pleaded on their behalf and God only judges those who won't turn back to him. And now we have Moses meeting with God, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Now this is really interesting. Because while they were making the golden calf, the reason they did it was because Moses was up on the mountain and God was giving him exact specifications for the tabernacle, which was supposed to be created and then set up in the middle of the camp. And now Moses has to take a tent outside of the camp to meet with God. You see, God's presence was going to be located within the tabernacle. Now he has to go out of the camp. Verse 8, And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Jump down to me with, uh, to verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. <sighs> Wouldn't that be like amazing? Like unbelievable. You and I should be having that exact same experience. You and I are able to do what only in the Old Testament was said of Moses. We live in a great time, and I'll explain why in just a second. And if I don't, raise your hand and say, yo, you said you were going to explain something. I will. Give me just a second. Keep reading. Verse 12. Moses is talking to God in the tent, and he's now having a conversation. And this is what the conversation actually was about. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. We think what Moses is asking here is, hey, God, you haven't said who's actually going to be allowed to continue on as your special treasure, as your holy nation. So, God, are you going to take everybody? like I've been asking, like I desire, okay? Only judging those that refuse to repent. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. Verse 13, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Look at how God replies. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Interesting. He says, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and go with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses actually speaks face to face with God. And when God wants to just use Moses, Moses pleads again on behalf of the people. And the two things that Moses asks for, do you see that? He wants to be taught how to know God. He's like, God, just, I want to I know you. Teach me how to know you. And God answers that prayer. And not only that, he says, and God, I want your presence. God, if your presence won't go with us, I don't want to go. You see, what he's basically saying is that what's the point of going to the promised land if you're not going to be there? 
What's the point of going to the promised land if you're not going to be there? God, if we get into the land and you're not there, it's not the promised land. Um, John Piper asks this question. I think it's a really important and good question for us to ask ourselves. Would you be satisfied to go to heaven, have everybody there in your family that you want there, have all the health and restoration of your prime, and everything you disliked about yourself fixed, have every recreation you've ever dreamed available to you, and have infinite resources of money to spend, would you be satisfied if God weren't there? Truth is, I think there's a lot of us that when we read that, we think, you know what, that, that actually sounds like heaven. Everything I've ever wanted, all the people there that I want there, I'm in the prime of my life, all the things that, are, that I don't like about myself have been taken care of, I've got infinite resources, infinite time. Does God actually need to be there for me to be satisfied? Um, there is a, uh, I, I don't want to call it a religion, but there is a, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, there's been a lot of folks that have been studying uh, Christianity in the West over the last 20 years or so. And this is the name that they've given uh, to uh, what a lot of people who call themselves Christians actually follow. Moralistic therapeutic deism. A lot of folks in the West would say, yeah, I'm a Christian because, well, I'm not communist. <laughs> Therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, I'm American. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Like, if you asked them, they would say, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. But this is actually what they're following. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism says uh, there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. All right? There's a God. Yeah. He created everything. Sure. He kind of watches over everything. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's why God created everything. He wants me to be happy, wants me to be fulfilled. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Therefore, I'm glad that he's here and I know that he wants me to be happy, but he doesn't really need to be involved in a whole lot until I need him. Then I'll pull him out, I'll rub the genie, He'll come out, he'll do what I need him to do, and then I'll put him back in until I need him again. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but this is actually what they believe. This is not Christianity. God is not simply a genie that we can control, that we can take out when we want him. That he really doesn't have a whole lot to do with our lives. In fact, we don't really want him involved in certain parts. We kind of tell him what he has access to and what he doesn't. But that's not the God of the Bible. And way too often, I think we follow that religion, right? That God exists simply to make me happy. Now, the truth is, is that we were created by God to know him and to be loved by him. Like, he is the central treasure. He is the goal in life. His presence is the greatest present. The reason that I don't think Moses argues with God is because he understands that the promised land has become more than simply a place that they're going to. He understands that it is God's presence that is truly what makes it the promised land. 
And so for Moses, at the end of his life, while he's standing there, is there some disappointment? Sure, I guarantee you there's some disappointment that he doesn't get to go in. But you know why he's not arguing with God? Because he's found the truth that God's presence is the greatest thing that anybody could ever want. That God is actually the gift, not the land. And that's what he wants all of us to recognize at the end of our lives. That it's not about what I didn't get or did get from God. It's about, do I have his presence? Am I actually with God? This is why when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil, the curtain, separating the holy of holies and the rest of the world, where God himself would dwell, gets torn in half. Because God is now saying, I'm not going to limit myself here. My presence can be with anybody who believes in Christ who trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that the presence is actually the greatest thing you could possibly have. Would you like your problems to go away? Absolutely. Do you pray for some good things? Healing, freedom from addiction, relationships to be restored, relationships to be started and formed. Would you like some of that? Yes. Is that good stuff to pray for? Absolutely. Will that satisfy you? No. Only God can satisfy us. This is one of the things that God has wanted us to learn from the book of Exodus. It doesn't mean that those things are bad things. They're not. And the day is coming when Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new and all things right. And we can't wait for that day. But the way that we experience the future is by recognizing that the greatest gift now is God's presence. And even when you sit on your deathbed and you say, God, I really wish this would have happened and that would have happened, and God, this doesn't seem fair and this doesn't seem right, but God, I am so grateful because I've had you, and you've never left me, you've never walked away from me, even in the hard seasons of life, I have found solace in your presence. That's what God desires. If God's presence isn't your promised land, you'll never be satisfied. And if God's presence is your promised land, you'll never be disappointed ultimately. So I want us to close this morning by simply asking this question. Is God your promised land? And we're going to take a minute and we're just going to sit with that question and let God speak to us. Is God's presence your promised land? Just sit with him and ask him. Confess if you need to confess Invite him into your space now if you need to, and just sit with God.
Dear Father, thank you for the gift of your presence. Jesus, thank you that when you left to go sit at the right hand of the Father, you didn't leave us alone, but you sent your Spirit. Spirit, thank you for indwelling us. That the presence of God literally is dwelling within us. And God, we can talk to you at any time, face to face, just as Moses did. In fact, you said, come boldly into your throne room of grace. God, let us be people who, like Moses, desire more than anything else your presence. God, we'll go anywhere if you are with us. And God, we don't want to go anywhere else if you are not. God, let that be true of us as individuals. Let that be true of us as a church. God, we want to help people fall in love with you. That is my passion and desire in life. And I know I don't always do a great job of it, God, but make it true of me first and foremost. Make it true of us as a community. And then God... Help us to show the rest of Grand Rapids that nothing else in life can satisfy other than you. God, will go anywhere if your presence will go with us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the grace that you lavish on us time and time and time again. Thank you for Christ who paid the penalty of all of our sin. Thank you that we get to come to your throne room with boldness, speaking to you face to face. Thank you that you know us by name. We love you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen.